Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? If you're at all engaged in the culture wars, you probably have heard the term critical race theory. And this is really just the most recent debate in a long set of debates around race in America. And you don't have to be a historical expert to know that America's record on race is rather poor. It's easy to allow secular thinkers or political debates to drive our positions on the issue of race and how we think about race in general. And this is really a tragedy because the New Testament and the Old Testament both have a tremendous amount to say about race. And what they have to say is incredibly relevant to the debates that we're having in the present. Unfortunately, the average evangelical, and I'm probably really talking about the average white evangelical, is rather unaware of what the Bible has to say about these topics. And there is a new book out called How to Heal Our Racial Divide that is wrestling both with what does the Bible say about race and ethnicity, and how does that come to land in our American context? The author is one of my favorite authors and favorite people, Dr. Derwin L. Gray. Dr. Gray is a former NFL player, and he is the co-founder of Transformation Church. He has a doctorate in ministry from Northwestern Seminary in the New Testament and reading the New Testament in context. And so he's really an expert on this topic. I love his book because it's not written in an academic tone. It's written to everyday people just like you and me. And I think if you read it, you'll learn something not just new, but you'll learn something that changes your life. This conversation with Dr. Gray was one of my favorites. Let's hop in. Hey everyone, I am so excited because normally when we do these interviews, they're over Zoom, but today we have the rare pleasure of inviting Derwin Gray into our studio to chat. We just took some pictures. We did. We <laughs> took some pictures. I did an Instagram reel that I've yet to post. You and Cassidy made it happen. I felt like a large model in Paris. Oh, wow. I'm glad we were able to give you that experience. Derwin, you didn't just do a dance. You did a Trinity dance. I did because I found out that when I just do dance reels on Instagram, I get like 30,000 views. But if I talk about theology, I get like seven. So I danced and did a teaching <laughs> on the doctrine of the Trinity. You should change your handle to just dance theology. You know what? I probably would. <laughs> In today's world of entertainment, I probably would. That's exactly what it is. Everybody just wants to be entertained. Well, we're not here to talk about your dance moves. We're here to talk about your recent book. And I just have to say, I love, love this book. So maybe before we hop in, tell us about the book. Tell us where people can find it. Yeah. So I wrote a book called How to Heal Our Racial Divide, what the 
first Christians knew and what the Bible says about racial reconciliation. It is a national bestseller, so praise God. And all my English teachers from high school would be utterly shocked that (laughs) this young man wrote a book. So anyway, you can get the book anywhere. Most folks go to Amazon or they go directly to Tyndale. So it's anywhere books are sold, and I recommend that you read it with a few friends, because at the end of every chapter is a prayer, things to think about, and questions to answers, and then practical, actionable steps that you can take. So I'm an old football player, and so this is a playbook. I'm your coach. I'm giving you the playbook. I'm showing you how to get it done. I'll tell you what, I felt that. And if I could add a further recommendation, listen to the audiobook because you recorded it. And anytime you're talking about topics that might be challenging for you personally, there's something about hearing the author because you get to hear their tone, you get to hear their heart. And that's what came through most loudly to me was your profound charity, not just for people who agree with you, but honestly, for people who strongly disagree with you. I don't know how many people could write a book like this and I could confidently say, if you are a absolute raging racist, I think you could go to Derwin's church and he would treat you with dignity, honor, respect, and he would probably totally transform your life. (laughs) And I say that because you tell those stories. I mean, it blew Mm -hmm. my mind. So I just love to start there. I mean, at Transformation Church, tell us stories of how people came in with racial hatred and animosity and what happened to them there. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jesus is the hero of the story, right? Matthew 5, 9 is very clear. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. So if you really want to know if you follow Jesus, are you a peacemaker? One of the plumb lines we say at Transformation Church is this, treat everybody like Jesus died for them because he did. And the people that we don't like, Jesus loves. So therefore, I must love them. How can you say you love God whom you've never seen and hate your brother who you see? The way someone treats me is not dependent upon how I'm going to treat them. So in the early days of Transformation Church, we were meeting in this old warehouse. And after service, I would jump off stage and I'd give the congregation high fives, give them hugs. One time I noticed this white guy in his mid 30s sprinting down the aisle towards me. <laughs> this feels like an active shooter situation. Man, unfortunately, in today's world, you have to think that way. So that yeah. time we didn't have security. So in my mind, I'm going, listen, I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and I'm a pacifist. I pass the fists. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to hug people, come with a right hook, because that's my strong hand. And as he's getting closer, I see snot dangling from his nose. And before I know it, he's grabbing me, and I'm sure the snot got all over me. He's (laughs) grabbing me, and he's crying, and he looks up, and he goes, I can't believe I'm in church, and I can't believe you're black. I don't even like black people. And so that's how our relationship started. The backstory is his girlfriend at the time had been coming to Transformation Church for about a year. She was in prison for drugs and other things. And she'd been inviting him for a year, and he couldn't argue with the way her life had changed. Mm -hmm. And he kept saying to her, listen, I'm not going to go to this church and see this N-word shuck and jive and Jew. I don't even know what shuck and jive and Jew means. Anyway, he came. And so as I got to talk to him, I'm like, dude, tell me your story. And he goes, man, I wanted to hate you so much, but the more you preach, the more I wanted Jesus, and I want to know Jesus. So eventually he came to faith. He and his girlfriend were baptized. They were serving in our church. And then she asked me, she said, Pastor, will you officiate our wedding? I said, of course. And she goes, and will you walk me down the aisle? Because my father disowned me at 16. 
So we have this wedding. And so the wedding day comes. They go through premarital counseling. It's awesome. She's wearing cowgirl boots, tight Wranglers with a white shirt with the sleeves cut off. So you can see her Bob wire tattoo. She's Jack. <laughs> and so I'm walking her down the aisle and up front near the pulpit is this guy and he's crying. And so as we're walking, I'm thinking to myself, wow, Lord, you're amazing. You took a racist and you've transformed him into a gracious. And so I had the honor of officiating their wedding, right? And so that's an example of how individually the gospel can transform your life. I am not going to allow other people's opinions to be greater than Jesus and what he speaks over me. I am the beloved child of the king. Therefore, you can't offend me because his righteousness is my shield. You see what I'm saying? And so therefore, I can engage with people like him, but it's not only just the individual aspects of racism, but there's also systemic aspect of racism and racial injustice that we want to affect and impact as well. So when we say systemic, typically evangelicals go, what do you mean? I'm not responsible for anything. So if you work at a bank and the bank tells you you can only give loans to certain groups of people in certain areas of town. You individually may not be a racist, but you're participating in a racist policy. That's called redlining. That's how most cities became the way that they are. They were redlined. OK, and so systemically you have dark powers, demons who not only work through people, but systems that oppress human beings. So think about it. Imagine telling a Native American in 1895, you can be whatever you want to be. I mean, as you're getting shipped to the reservation, your ancestors have been killed. So we have to think not just in terms of ourselves, but the larger picture. And so the gospel calls us to not just care about me, but to care about the we. Mm, yeah. I have experienced a lot of resistance to almost all the ideas you just laid out amongst my fellow white evangelical brothers and sisters. And your example for me was so convicting because I'm going to be honest, this just happened to me the other day. I think, and I think you'd agree with this, that we need to be direct about confronting racism, whether it's individual mm -hmm. racism or systemic racism. I don't really have any compunctions about saying it the way it is. Now, I think the way I say it and how I treat people matters tremendously to mm -hmm. Jesus. And so I want to do it in a way that honors him with charity and grace and meekness mm -hmm. and all the things that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. But someone came at me on Twitter to defend this racist perspective. And just to be honest, I unleashed on this guy. I mean, I just went nuts on him. And afterwards, I had to apologize to this racist mm -hmm. dude, mm -hmm. which is weird. And I told a friend, I go, I don't know how to say this. I am too impatient with racism. Mm -hmm. Like, I am too unkind and ungenerous towards it. And then I read your book and the way you treated that guy and the way you treated other people who have a lot of the similar mindset. And it was so deeply convicting to me. So I guess I just want to ask, how? Like, how did you get to the point where you're responding the way you're responding to whether it's individual racism or systemic racism? Today's racist is tomorrow's gracious. When you think of the Apostle Paul, he was a Jewish pharisaical nationalist who persecuted the church. Yeah. He would have had nothing to do with Gentiles, and he became the apostles who built the Jew-Gentile church. And so just because a person is one way today does not mean the gospel cannot transform them and make them new tomorrow. And besides, and I think this is the greater point, 
No one can make you enter their circle of hate unless you let them. What do you mean by that? So let me give you a story. A couple of years ago, I'm at a stoplight. Some white dudes in a big old truck drive by and I hear the N-word. Typically, I would ignore it. This time, I just went postal and I'm flooring it down the street trying to catch up to them. I bob and weave through traffic like a NASCAR race car driver and I catch them at a red light. And I roll down my window and I yell, what did you say? And these young white dudes were terrified. And they were wrong. But when I saw their faces and the fear in their face, I immediately repented and I pulled off the side of the road. And I said, Lord, I repent that I allowed them to draw me into their anger Mm -hmm. and their hatred. So what I'm saying is I don't have to respond because love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long suffering. I don't have to respond with unhealthy anger. Righteous indignation is great. We need righteous indignation, but I'm going to put coals on your head with love and mercy. I'm not going to let you know that you made me angry. And so that's what I'm saying. Like unhealthy anger draws us into the poison, you know, it's like the old movies where someone gets bit by a snake and the person sucks the poison out. I don't know if that really works, but you probably get sick too. And so a lot of times when we respond with unrighteous anger, we become just like them. John Perkins told me a story. For those of you who don't know, John Perkins is yeah. amazing. Anyway, in the early 70s, he was in a protest and he got arrested by police officers in Mississippi and they did all types of horrible things to him. They put a spoon up his nose. They crushed his testicles. They made him clean up his own blood. And he thought to himself, if I had a grenade, I would blow everybody up in here, including myself. But then he said, if I did that, I would be just as bad as them. Yeah. Gosh, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about Daniel's vision of the beasts that come up out of the sea and how each beast kind of devours the last beast that came before it. And that's kind of how world history works. It's like the Babylonians come along and they're evil and they're awful. And so the Persians come along to do the just thing. We're going to beat the Babylonians and they end up devouring the Babylonians and then become like Babylon. And then Greece comes along and they, Mm -hmm. oh, we're going to stop the evil Persians. And then they end up becoming like the Persians. And that's just the cycle of hatred and violence. It's Mm -hmm. just feeding more hatred, more violence, meeting more hatred, more violence. And of course, Jesus throws himself onto that wheel as a self-sacrifice. Yeah. So my wife and I were just in Greece. Yeah. And as we learned the history of Greece, I finally said to the tour guide, so this is a history of just war. And so I think Jesus comes to say, there is a better way. It's the way of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, the way of Christ is so much better that if we live with Philippians 2, 3 in mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. But we have to understand, though, the world's not going to be that way. The church is. The church is to be an outpost of hope. I'm going to use a big word. The church is the eschatological picture of what eternity is to be. Can you define that for us? Yeah. Eschatological just means end times. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to have glorified, resurrected bodies. Whatever ethnicity you are now, that's what you're going to be. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's going to be beautiful beyond description. It is glorious. Well, the church is to be a portrait of that. We shouldn't expect world governments who don't know Jesus to be that. The church is to be a light on a hill, not a nation. 
the church is a holy nation. We are holy people within unholy nations. Yeah. And that highlights the risk of anytime any nation tries to take the word Christian and slap it right on top of things. Because as you just said, the church is the holy nation and the church is not a single nation, a single ethnicity, a single nationality. It's none of those things. It is itself a diverse holy nation. Yes. And so that's why it's very important that particularly for pastors that are listening, that you're not so myopic and teaching a small view of history. One of the things that I have found that's helped our church over the last few months is I say to them, how would you live if there was no Republican Party or Democratic Party? And I'll pause. And then I'll say, keep in mind, for 2,000 years, and even to this day, that's the way 99.99999% of Christians have lived their faith. If you can't live your faith without the Republican Party or Democratic Party, your faith has been hijacked and you're following an elephant, a MAGA, or a donkey and not the lamb. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Man, that's a fantastic question for all of us to ask and wrestle with. And just goes back to what you said about the way of Jesus. We can't end hatred and violence with more hatred and violence. The only way to bring a close to that cycle is love and self-sacrifice. Yes, but it comes back to this, right? Whatever your heart desires most is what your actions will pursue. And when nationalism, whether it be left whacked out progressive nationalism or whether if it's whacked out right conservative nationalism, religion is only used for the conquest of power. Hmm. I take vitamin D because I had a vitamin D deficiency. Well, I think pulpits in America, respectfully, I say this with humility, have a gospel deficiency. And as a result, our people are unhealthy. There is a reason why our congregation members will listen more to Tucker Carlson are some left-leaning pundit more than pastors is because we have not taught them the beauty and the grandeur of King Jesus. Ephesians 1.10 says, 
all things are going to be united unto Christ. He is sovereign. He is God. He is king. He's not Burger King. He's not asking you how you want it your way. He's the king of kings. And by grace, he has summoned us into his holy courts to become his temples, to become his people, to become his body, to do his bidding on earth. And that is picking up our cross and following him. And what we do is we pick up our voters' guides. What we do is we pick up a second mortgage. What we do, let me stop now. <laughs> you caught me in the middle of a drink of my Red Bull there. I was ready for more. I think you're right. There is a gospel deficiency. And I do think one of the areas where, especially in white evangelicalism, which tends to be my own circles, can be incredibly deficient. And mm-hmm. it has to do with race and how we think about diversity inside the church and how we think about the history of race in America and how we think about racial justice and reconciliation in the present. And so I'd love to shift our conversation into that direction. But I want to start here. This was a few years ago. I was teaching a class on the Book of Romans, which has a ton to say about race. Yeah. I mean, tons, you know. That's and, what the and, whole book's about. <laughs> arguably, it is right at the center of what Paul is trying to tell this group of Jews and Gentiles figuring out how do we do church and life and all this other stuff together. But a woman came up to me after the Bible study and she said, hey, you know, I love your Bible study. I love you. But why do you got to talk so much about race? Mm. You're a pastor. Your job is to teach the gospel. Mm. But you're up here talking about race all of the time. Why? Mm. What would you say? (laughs) (laughs) I would give her a big hug and I would say, um, what ethnicity was Jesus? Well, Jewish. Um, where were the nation of Israel in slavery for 400 years? Egypt. Can you tell me about the people they had to deal with as they went to the promised land? Oh, you mean the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Zezubites, the Prezubites? Yeah. And then what happened when they disobeyed? Who took them into captivity? The Babylonians? Oh, yeah, that's right. And so, and then they went back to the promised land. And who was running the promised land? Well, the Romans? Oh, interesting. And then when you look at the new heavens and new earth, what types of folks are there in Revelation 5-9? Every nation, tribe, and tongue? And you ask me why I talk about race? Because the Bible is about a beautiful triune God Hmm. who came to earth on a rescue mission to give a man by the name of Abraham a family. And this family was made up of all the families of the earth. And Galatians 3.16 says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And so Jesus, who is Lord, vindicated by his resurrection through his sinless life, atoning death, creates this new family made up of all the families of the earth. And when his family loves each other, the world will know that they're my disciples. Hmm. And their unity together will show the world that the father did indeed send the son. And after I told her that, I would take a step back and I would say, I'm sorry that you have been taught the Bible so improperly. And I would suspect that the devil has used that to create areas of ethnic supremacy Mm. in your life. The sad thing is what I just said is very common first century, second temple understanding of the Christian faith. We need to go back, not to the Reformation in Europe, but we need to go back to the early soil. When you look at Jesus himself, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just do this biblical theology here. Let's go. When you look at Jesus himself, 
when he fed 5,000 people on one side of the Sea of Galilee and 4,000 on the other side, why did he do that? Well, on one side was Jews and on the other side was Gentiles. And Matthew 8, 11 says there's going to be the banquet of Abraham with Jews and Gentiles. So he's fulfilling his messianic role to bring people together. Why does Jesus go to Samaria? Well, in 722 BC, the Babylonians took the 10 tribes of Israel into captivity. And out of that comes the Samaritans. And there's an ethnic feud there. There's a racial feud there. There's also misogyny there because women were not even considered equal. And so Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman and she discovers that he's the living water. And what does she do? She runs to Sychar, her hometown, to tell her other Samaritan brothers and sisters about the Messiah. And guess what a Samaritan is? A Jew and a Gentile in one body. And guess what the church is supposed to be? A Jew and a Gentile in one body. What is the Samaritan woman? A woman. What's the church? Bride of Christ. And let's continue. Jesus tells his disciples, Jewish disciples, by the way, Go make disciples of all nations. The word nations there means all ethnic groups. Can you imagine Jewish disciples going, wait, 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 wait. You want me to go reach the Egyptians? Nah, man, they held us in slavery for 400 years. These Romans? Nope, they put my cousin on a cross. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prejudites? Nope, I ain't going to go reach any of them. And that's why in the book of Acts, it wasn't until Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that the early church finally left Jerusalem. Why? Because persecution arose and they were scattered. And the verse says, and Philip went to Samaria. So that's just Jesus. And I write about this stuff. And let me pause here. One of my big angst is most people don't like theology. But here's the thing, though. Every decision you make, you make out of a theological thought. Hmm. So you're either a good one or a bad one. And so a lot of times people don't want to take the time to really get to know the heart of God. So when I wrote my book, I fell deeper in love with Jesus. And watch this now. The deeper I fall in love with Jesus, the more loving I am to people who are racist, the more loving I am to brothers and sisters who disagree with me. Why? Because in Jesus, I see the God of reconciliation. And who am I not to love the people that Jesus died for? Yeah, I can. And I have heard people respond to this line of logic and say, oh yeah, you know, Jesus came to rescue everyone. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your nationality. Yeah, I agree with all that. But what's wrong with people of the same ethnicity or the same nationality choosing to just worship with one another. They like the same music. They have a similar culture to one another. What, what, what's so bad about having segregated churches? Well, segregated churches create silos of ignorance. And research shows that when you have homogeneous churches in America, stereotypes increase, political division increase, also racism increases as well. And so... There's a reason why God wanted Jews and Gentiles in the same local congregations, Mm -hmm. because your difference helps me to see what I can't see. My difference helps you to see what I can't see. And here's the thing for everybody listening. When you read the Bible, every time you see an ethnicity, just circle it whether Jew, barbarian, Greek, Roman, Scythian, Egyptian, 
someone from Cyprus, just circle it and it's just going to start to bubble up everywhere. Listen, God doesn't want us to be colorblind. He wants us to be color blessed. I was in the midst of writing How to Heal Our Racial Divide. I was at a coffee shop and an older white man, he and I caught eyes and goes, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on a book. He says, what is your book about? I said, How to Heal Our Racial Divide. And he goes, what racial divide? There's no racial divide in America. I don't see color. I'm colorblind. And I said, well, why not? Because God made you the beautiful ethnicity you are, and I'm the beautiful ethnicity I am. And when we say, I don't see your color, you're diminishing God's creative genius. I've never heard a white guy say to another white guy, bro, I'm so colorblind, I don't see your color. We just say that to minorities, and on the surface, it sounds good, but below that, it's dismissive, and it diminishes the image of God. And here's what's a trip is the overwhelming majority of people in the world today who follow Jesus are people of color. And so, no, our colors and our cultures matter. The image of God is there. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, we're not going to be colorless. When we get to the new heavens and new earth, Jesus is going to be the brown-skinned, Semitic, first-century Jewish man that he was. I'm going to be my cocoa caramel colored self. You know what I'm saying? Now, I do think my white brothers and sisters will have a much better tan than the new heavens and earth. <laughs> Man, that's what I'm hoping I for. I mean, like, you don't have to lay out in the sun and be like rotisserie chicken or <laughs> anything. Like, like, I'm joking, people, by the way, but there's so much beauty in our colors and our cultures, and we don't yeah. want to diminish them. And let me say this last thing here, and this is really, really important. One of the big hurdles to this discussion of gospel-centered multi-ethnic church and healing the racial divide is this. We as American Christians, particularly my white brothers and sisters, we don't do well with looking at the past because for some reason, my white brothers and sisters think that America is just theirs. And so if you say something bad about America's history, you're saying something bad about them. That's idolatry. If you belong to Jesus, America is not your identity. Mm. It is not my identity. So we can look back and go, man, I love America. America has done some wonderful things. But like every country on the face of the earth, there's been some horrible things. And the past affects the present. Think about it. In World War II, there was this thing called the GI Bill. 1.2 million black GIs came back from fighting racist Nazis in Germany only to experience racism and segregation in America. 1.2 million black GIs did not get the black GI Bill. White GIs did. That led to the suburban housing boom and trillions of economic dollars that was passed on in generational wealth. Mm -hmm. Black people missed out on that. Yeah. So the past affects the present. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you're a victim. You know what that means is you're intelligent. Like if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, man, your lungs are really bad. Have you smoked? And you go, well, it doesn't matter in the past if I smoked or not. (laughs) Yeah. No, it actually does matter. The question is, are we looking at it collectively in the gospel saying that was horrible? That'll never happen on my watch. And then how do we restore and how do we repair because we're the kingdom of God? Yeah, I once heard someone describe it to a baseball game where for the first seven innings, one team was cheating. 
without any consequences. And so naturally, cheaters are going to end up scoring a lot of runs. And they're in the lead, and the seventh inning stretch happens, and now all of a sudden the cheating ends. And the team that's been cheated on says, well, we need to restart the game because you guys cheated this whole way. And the other team says, what happened? It doesn't matter. Let's just finish the game. It's all equal now. And of course it's not equal because there's a past history that's now being brought into those last two innings of the game. In a Western individualistic society, it's hard for people to understand that because they've just been taught it's just about me. Mm-hmm. Even what's my relationship with Jesus? Well, not only is it your relationship with Jesus, but your relationship with Jesus means you have brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters matter. Mm. So it's not just me. It's about the we. And I believe that that's what the good news of King Jesus actually does is he expands the horizons of our hearts to love in such a way that people go, wow, other people who are different than me matter. One last story. I know we're getting short here on time. What I found from white members of our church, and our church is probably 58% white, is they will adopt young black boys. And when the black boys are young, like two and three, oh, they're cute. But something happens at 15, 16, and the parents will come to me and go, Pastor, I see the way my black son is treated versus my white son, and we just never knew that racism was this bad. Wow. And so you pastor folks, you love them. And often I'll gently say, you know, how could you have not known your black brothers and sisters have been telling you this for so long? Yeah. And the reason why they didn't know is because they didn't want to know. Don't wait until the problem knocks on your door before you do something about it. Yeah. And I think it is so difficult, and I say this as a white person, it is difficult to see what you don't experience, what's not a part of your everyday reality. This is a really stupid example. It turns out I'm a quarter Jewish. I didn't know this when I was in high school. However, surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, I was made fun of by high schoolers very consistently for looking Jewish. And of course, yeah, that's a little anti- racism, huh? Well, yeah, I didn't know I was Jewish. You know, I don't even quite remember how I responded to it and how I dealt with that. But even that tiny little dose of people paying attention negatively to the way that I looked and making racialized jokes about it gave me just this tiny, tiny, tiny little window into what it would be like to live my whole life with everybody around me having a much higher sense of awareness about their race, my race, Mm -hmm. everything else. And that I have, for most of my life, lived without a sense of personal racial awareness. In other words, I never thought about the fact that I'm a white man walking around. But of course, I am white. (laughs) And everywhere I walk, I am white. And just those tiny little moments kind of helped me see, whoa, I just got into the mind of others who have experienced things that I haven't experienced. And so I guess one of the questions I want to ask is, especially for your white brothers and sisters who tend to just be blind to this, not because they don't have a race, but because we tend to live as though we don't have a race. How do they develop an awareness of the experience of others? And I think that's why the Lord wanted his church to be a multi-ethnic church, because Mm. proximity breeds intimacy. Into me, you see. And so a lot of times when we're hanging out in silos of homogeneity, we don't get to experience the other. The other person is a stereotype and a rumor. But one of the blessings of our church is you've got people from different ethnicities. They raise each other's kids, their family. Mm -hmm. They have discussions about politics and theology and life. We do life together. 
And that's one of the reasons why I'm a big proponent of multi-ethnic church, because one, Jesus is, and two, (laughs) iron sharpens iron. There's friction, there's growth, there's understanding. And if you're a quarter Jew, you probably could qualify to go to Israel for free. (laughs) <laughs> is, is it on your mom's side or it's on my dad's side on your dad's side okay yeah it's not it's the less good side right i think it's well, just on your mom's side yeah yeah <laughs> i mean but i mean do a dna test you can go to israel oh, for it. free i am 22 percent european i uh-huh. did it did a dna test mm-hmm. yeah i mean and i'm dark yeah but in my dna is 22 percent european man i think the proximity point is so critical and i'm just reflecting on my own experience One of the best gifts God gave to me when I was in seminary was that the kind of dean of students was a black man, and he was such a gift in my life because that proximity and our relationship and the way that he mentored me and cared for me and taught me and shared his wisdom with me, it opened me to seeing the world in a way that I was frankly incapable of seeing on my own. And what I've discovered with a lot of people who get offended by the kinds of you know things that you're writing and saying is that they lack those proximate relationships. There's just no one in their life who's of a different race, who has a very significant role as a mentor or a very dear close friend to challenge their view on these things. And so I love the call and the challenge, not only for churches to become more diverse and to actively seek to create environments that bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into their doors who are part of their local communities, but also for Christians to go and intentionally build those relationships. Okay, you go to an all-white church. I guarantee you're not in an all-white city. You got to find those friends. You got to find those mentors, and you're going to have to build the bridges. You might be at an all-black church. Exact same thing. We've got to find those friends and build those relationships. To close us down, I would just love if you'd pray for our audience, pray for our hearts, that we would build bridges, that we would seek justice, that we would love reconciliation. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going to pray Galatians 2.20 for us. And Galatians 2.20 comes off the heels of when Paul confronted Peter for his racism in Antioch. And the reason why Paul could no longer be a racist was because of Galatians 2.20. And so my prayer for us is this. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Though I live in the body, it is by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. May it be so unto us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming onto the show with us, coming into the studio, getting to spend time together. We can take some more uh, dance photos after this. We can do a TikTok. (laughs) Ooh, a TikTok. Stay tuned. We'll see what happens. Thanks again. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.